0: One of the things we have seen as we have worked our way through Mark's gospel thus far is how completely foreign it was to the disciples that Jesus was going to be crucified. Whenever we hear the term Messiah, we think of the one who died on the cross to take away our sins. The fact is, that would have been the furthest thing from their minds whenever they heard the term Messiah or used the term Messiah, they would have thought of words such as king or conqueror or vanquisher. And we shouldn't criticize them for thinking such thoughts because God's word given to them in Hebrew Scripture has an immense amount to say about the Messiah being a conqueror and a king and a vanquisher. So that was their grid through which they saw Jesus. They knew that God's Word promised them a kingdom, and they knew that it was the Messiah who would bring in that kingdom. Therefore, when the disciples came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah, it is not surprising that they assumed that the kingdom was about to be established. After all, John the baptizer had come announcing the kingdom, He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Jesus had come preaching the kingdom. He said basically the same thing. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it shouldn't be shocking that the disciples had high hopes that Jesus was going to conquer all their enemies and bring in the kingdom at any moment. Besides, they knew he had the power to do it. Because they had seen his power over demons, over storms, over disease, over sickness, and even over death. Thus, it all made sense in their minds. It all fit together perfectly. Hebrew scripture promises a Messiah who will bring in the kingdom. Jesus claimed to be that Messiah. He proved he had the power to be the conqueror and king. What else is there? What is he waiting for? That's the way the disciples would have been thinking. As a result, when Jesus began to talk about being conquered by his enemies, rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, and killed by the Romans, the disciples were in total shock. They were stunned beyond description. It would not be an overstatement to say that they were traumatized to the point that they could not even hear or think clearly. Their minds could not grasp or accept what Jesus was saying when he announced that he was going to be unjustly murdered. It made no sense to them whatsoever, so they completely rejected or dismissed the idea as utter foolishness. Because that was their response, Jesus had to tell them over and over and over again. This morning we see another one of his attempts to get them to see that he had come to be a suffering Messiah. Let's turn together to Mark chapter 10 and please follow along as I read verses 32 through 34. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. As I mentioned a moment ago, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had tried to get his disciples to see and understand that he had come to be a suffering Messiah. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, he spoke of the destruction of the temple of his body. In chapter 3 of John's Gospel, he told Nicodemus that he would be lifted up, which was a technical way of referring to crucifixion. In John 6, 51, he said he would give his flesh as the bread of life for the world. In John 10, he said he would lay down his life as the good shepherd. But the disciples never got the message. They just didn't get it. Therefore, Jesus became more specific about the issue as the time got closer. Go back to Matthew chapter 16 for a minute. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to an earlier event than the one we're going to consider this morning in Mark 10, Matthew chapter 16 beginning in verse 21. We read, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The only way we will be able to to understand what's going on here is to go back in time and put ourselves in the mindset of the disciples. The first three words of verse 21 say, from that time. What time is Matthew talking about? What, what time is he describing? Well, back in verse 16, the apostle Peter asserted the greatest confession ever uttered by any man. When Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, Peter answered as the spokesman for the group, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was no impulsive utterance given as a knee-jerk reaction to some highly emotional event. No, Peter and the other disciples had watched Jesus and contemplated Jesus and studied Jesus and thought about Jesus for almost three years. They had seen him and they had heard him for all that time. And they came to the settled conviction that this man was no mere man. He was the promised Messiah and the Son of the living God. That was their resolved conclusion. And Jesus affirmed that their assessment was right by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So that is in some ways the high point of Jesus' ministry with his disciples. Jesus has been working with his men for almost three years to convince them that he is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. And they have finally come to believe that beyond any shadow of a doubt. So, mission accomplished. Jesus knew from day one that he was eventually going to hand off his ministry to these men. He knew the day would come when they would have to carry on in his absence. They didn't know that, but he did. He knew it. So he worked tirelessly to get them ready for that task. And one of the primary ways he, he had to get them ready was to convince them deep in their hearts, deep in their souls, that he was the Messiah and the Son of the living God. So with this statement, here in chapter 16, this statement by Peter, it is clear that they have finally arrived. They finally got that. That means it was time for Jesus to turn to the next major aspect of his life's work, which would be the cross. But that's what threw the disciples such a curve. They didn't see it that way at all. If they have finally gotten to the point of understanding to which Jesus wanted to bring them, then the next step in their minds is to bring in the kingdom. After all, they were going to be his right-hand men. They understood that much. They were going to be his key men in the kingdom, and that's why he took so much time to train them. So if they are where they need to be in their understanding, if they are where they need to be in their preparation, what is holding things back? That's the way they were thinking. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, as Peter has just stated, then let's get going with the kingdom program. That was their perspective. And from their point of view, There was no reason to doubt that they were seeing things accurately. But they weren't seeing the whole picture. The day will come when Jesus will bring in the kingdom. The day will come when our prayers will be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That day will come, but before that day can become a reality, the king had to die. That's why Jesus began to tell his disciples about that Necessary reality. He, reinfor- he reinforces that reality again to them over in the very next chapter, Matthew 17. Just turn over a page to the right to Matthew chapter 17. And notice that he says this again to them, trying to get through to them. Verse 22. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They were still up in Galilee when Jesus repeated this announcement. They hadn't begun the trek south to Jerusalem as of yet, but Jesus knew that when they did, things would get even more hectic because the crowds would get larger and larger and things would get more chaotic. Thus, he tried to get through to them now rather than waiting until the last minute. He wanted them to understand that when he told them that it was time to begin the journey to, to Jerusalem, it would be a journey culminating in his death. But before he specifically said something about his death, in verse 23, he says something here in verse 22 about him being delivered up or betrayed. This is the first mention of his betrayal. He did already say in John 6, 70, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? But the disciples didn't have a clue about what he meant when he said that. No clue at all. They had no idea that one from in their own midst would be the man to hand Jesus over to his enemies. They knew Jesus had enemies. And they probably even knew that some of those enemies wanted to kill him, but it never crossed their minds that it would be one of them who would hand him over. They didn't even know that one of them wasn't a genuine believer. They were convinced that they were all on the same team, all on the same page. And why should they doubt that? Since they had all gone out together in teams of two for their short-term work. Jesus sent them out two by two. Judas went along. There's no reason to believe that Judas was any less effective than the other disciples in that ministry. I mean, think about it. If he had been the only one unable to cast out demons or the only one unwilling to proclaim repentance, he would have stood out like a sore thumb. But he didn't. He went right along with the others, and he may have even assumed that the others were following Jesus for the same reasons he was following Jesus. You see, he was following Jesus for completely selfish reasons. He figured that if Jesus did overthrow Rome and bring about a revolution by establishing a new kingdom, then he would be in a very good position as one of those of the inner circle. That would give him access to power, authority, position, prestige, money, influence. The other disciples. Frankly, probably had some similar motives at times, but theirs were mixed with good motives of genuine love for Jesus and genuine belief in Jesus, but not Judas. His sole motive for following Jesus was for what he could get out of the deal. At least the other disciples did love Jesus, even though their motives may have been mixed at times. Judas was in this thing for himself. John 12, 6 tells us that he was the treasurer for the group, and he regularly stole from the money box. But the other disciples had no clue whatsoever that he wasn't really one with them in their love for Jesus. Even on the final night, when Jesus announced that one of them would betray him that very evening, none of them suspected Judas. Even when Jesus dismissed him from the Passover meal to go carry out his dastardly deed. None of them suspected Judas. The others thought that Jesus had told him to go give something to the poor since he was the treasurer. It's a special holiday. Go give something to the poor. They never had a clue about his real character until he walked up to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, accompanied by soldiers, and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Therefore, when Jesus said this about him being betrayed into the hands of men, the other disciples wouldn't have suspected Judas any more than they would have suspected Thomas or John or Peter or anyone else of their own number. So as a gentle shepherd who knew how much his disciples could take knowing how much they could handle. He doesn't unload the entire dump truck on them here. He doesn't say that one of them will be the betrayer. Notice that here in chapter 17, verse 22. He simply says he will be betrayed. That would have been disturbing enough. The very word betrayed implies that what will be done to hand him over will be done by someone somewhat close to him. Someone who's in a position Betray him. So Jesus made it clear he wouldn't be captured by aggressive means. He would be betrayed into the hands of men. But the unjust tragedy wouldn't end there. Look at verse 23, Matthew 17. And they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. I am convinced that they did not hear the second part of Jesus' statement when he mentioned the resurrection. When he said that he would be killed, I think their minds completely shut off. I say that because the last phrase of the verse says they were exceedingly sorrowful. If they had heard about the resurrection, I don't think they would have been so sorrowful. They may have been confused about what all this meant, but at least they would have some idea that, okay, if they kill him, he's not going to stay dead. He's going to be raised from the dead. So I don't think they heard him say he would be raised up. Their world collapsed when they heard Jesus say he would be killed. Their world was shattered at that point. All of their hopes and dreams and longings and aspirations were bound up in this man. This seems to be the first time, here in Matthew 17, the first time that the disciples even heard what Jesus was trying to say say to them about his upcoming death. He had started talking about his death at the very beginning of his ministry, and he mentioned it many times, but this seems to be the first time it even registered with them at all. As a result, they were exceedingly sorrowful. Because this was so overwhelming to them, they apparently pushed it out of their minds, blocked it out of their minds, and forgot about it. Maybe they were just hoping that the whole thing would go away. Maybe they were hoping that it would just never happen, that there was something they weren't really hearing Jesus right, and it really wouldn't happen. They dismissed it again. So Jesus had to tell them another time in an attempt to prepare them for what was certainly going to happen. And that brings us to our text in Mark chapter 10. Let's go back to that text. Here in Mark 10, Jesus again tells his disciples what they didn't want to hear and what they weren't willing to accept. For whatever reason, they weren't willing to accept it. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 We read, now they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. The phrase there in verse 32, going up to Jerusalem, is extremely significant here in this verse. This is Mark's way of telling us that Jesus has begun his final journey to the city, which will culminate in his crucifixion. You see, Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times throughout his ministry. He went there back and forth. He was there each year for Passover, as well as the other major Jewish holidays. So this was not uncommon for him to go back and forth, even though he based his ministry out of Capernaum, up in Galilee in the north part of Israel. He made the trek to Jerusalem on a regular basis. But this time was different. This time He wasn't going there simply for ministry opportunities. This time he wasn't going there simply to commemorate Passover or Pentecost or or, or whatever Jewish holiday it was. No, he was going there this time for the ultimate aspect of his ministry, and that was his death on the cross. Throughout his ministry, he had called people to follow him and believe in him, but he knew that his followers could not be with him, with the Father in heaven, without paying for their sins. That's what he would accomplish on the cross. He would lay down his life for the sheep. So this trip to Jerusalem was different. And the crowd following sensed there was something different about it. By the way, there was a crowd. It wasn't just the twelve. Jesus, like many up in Galilee, whenever they would go to Jerusalem, uh, they would go as a group. There were always large crowds. And in fact, as Jesus made this journey south, the crowd just got larger and larger as they picked up all these people who were going south to be in Jerusalem for Passover. This was was a very common occurrence. And so the crowd just kept getting larger and larger. And Mark tells us that the, the, the crowd sensed that there's something different here. Maybe they sensed something different because Jesus was walking before them alone instead of his usual practice of walking with them. Picture that in my, in your mind. I'm sure you've seen that kind of thing where you maybe been with a group and you're going somewhere as a group, and the person who's maybe leading is, is really leading. They're way out in front, and you maybe even use the expression, you say, man, he's on a mission. You know, he's, he's going somewhere. That's what's going on here. Jesus is on a mission. The crowd senses it. They realize that that something's going on here. In fact, Mark tells us they were both amazed and afraid. They were amazed at the willingness of Jesus to return to Jerusalem where so many people were out to get him. And they were afraid of what was going to unfold once they got there. They knew this was different. This wasn't like all the other trips to Jerusalem. And Mark tells us He took the 12 aside again. He pulls them away from this large crowd heading to Jerusalem for Passover. He pulls them aside to warn them about what was going to happen once they got there. You see, they still weren't grasping what was coming. They still weren't getting it. We don't know exactly why they weren't getting it, but they weren't. Maybe it was because the reality was too painful to contemplate. So they pushed it out of their minds. That's not an uncommon human reaction. If you've ever been through an extremely painful experience, you understand that. There's a sense in which it's sort of a defense mechanism in the mind. You just push it out because contemplating is just too painful to endure. Maybe that's what was going on. Or maybe it was just because the grid in their minds of the conquering king was so strong that the idea of Jesus being conquered by his enemies just never stuck. He would say it, and they would get it for just a little while, and it wouldn't stick. It would would be gone, and they would revert back to this idea. He's the conquering king. He's going to conquer all his enemies and bring in the kingdom. We don't know exactly why the disciples were still so clueless, but the fact is they were. That is abundantly clear as you read the Gospels. Jesus would tell them, he would tell them, he would tell them, and they weren't getting it. Now they knew that Jesus had enemies in Jerusalem and they knew they were out to get him. But remember, Jesus had always been able to avoid them or escape them or resist them with his masterful words. There were many attempts on his life. It actually began when he returned to his hometown of Nazareth, spoke in the synagogue. They tried to push him over the cliff. And it says in Luke's gospel chapter four, he just passed through their midst. So the disciples didn't seem to, Be concerned about this. Hey, he has some enemies, but they can't really catch him. They can't stop him. They can't apprehend him. Therefore, the disciples had no idea, no idea that he was going to experience the atrocities of a betrayal by one of his own, a baseless arrest, a series of unjust trials, barbaric treatment at the hands of cruel soldiers, and the unspeakable agony of the cross. They didn't see that coming. So Jesus warned them once again. In verse 33, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. This is the second time now that Jesus told them he was going to be betrayed. We looked at the first time in Matthew 17, just a few minutes ago. Just as in that passage, he doesn't say here that one of them will be the betrayer. He simply says that he will be betrayed. That would have been shocking enough. The very word betrayed carries with it the idea that what will be done to hand him over will be done by someone who's somewhat close to him who's in a position to make that happen. Jesus wants to make it clear he would not be captured by aggressive means. He would be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. Those, of course, were the religious leaders of Israel. I'm sure the disciples thought, if they thought on this for any length of time at all, why would he be betrayed to them? Why turned over to our religious leaders? I don't think the disciples yet understood how corrupt their religious leaders were and how much they hated Jesus, and how many differences there were between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Sure, Jesus and the religious leaders had some differences, but the disciples never thought of it as as a killing affair, that it would actually come to that. In the minds of the disciples, if anyone would have tried to kill Jesus, it would have been the Romans, not the Jews. But Jesus dropped a bomb on his disciples when he said that, the betrayal would be into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And then he added the next phrase of verse 33, and they will condemn him to death. On what basis? On what basis? Jesus hadn't done anything illegal or unjust or deserving of death. That may have been why the disciples dismissed the whole thing from their minds. They knew Jesus was totally innocent of wrongdoing. There was nothing they could pin on him or hang on him. So the thought of him being tried, going through a trial, and found guilty of some kind of capital offense was ludicrous to them. could never happen. There's nothing there. They didn't even need to think about it. So they assumed. Well, they did need to think about it. Because it was a certainty. It was going to happen. Jesus was going to be betrayed to the religious leaders of Israel, and they, in turn, would deliver him to the Gentiles. That's a reference to the Roman authorities. The Jewish leaders plotted the death of Jesus, but they couldn't carry it out. At least, they couldn't carry it out the way they wanted to carry it out. They didn't have the authority to crucify him, so they had to involve the Romans. They didn't want Jesus simply to die. They didn't want to just stone him to death, which they had tried to do a few times throughout his ministry. No, they finally came to the conclusion, we need to get rid of this guy and we need to have it be by crucifixion because that is so despicable. And that, is, that will totally, totally eliminate him from consideration in the minds of the people of being the Messiah. If he is crucified, that will be the end of him both physically and also in his relationship to the people, in his reputation. But you see, they didn't have the authority. The Jews didn't have the authority to crucify, only the Romans. If the Jews carried out any kind of death, and they weren't supposed to, it was by stoning. So that's why Jesus says the chief priests and scribes are going to condemn him to death and deliver him to the Romans. In verse 34, and they, the Gentiles, the Romans will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. This should not have been new information to the disciples. Not only had Jesus told them this several times and in several different ways, their own scriptures predicted that the Messiah would be a suffering Messiah Isaiah 53 is the most notable passage detailing his rejection and his suffering, but there are many others in Hebrew Scripture. Yet this was an aspect of the work of the Messiah that was completely absent from the minds of the disciples. That is why on this occasion Jesus laid it out in so much detail for them. He pulled them aside, get them away from the crowd so they're not distracted, so they can concentrate, so they can listen, so they can hear, so they can think. And he said he would be betrayed. He said he would be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes. He said they would deliver him to the Gentiles, which was a way of saying he would be handed over to the Romans. He said the Romans would mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and then crucify him. He said he would rise again the third day, and that is exactly what happened, as you know. But you want to hear something amazing, shocking? The disciples didn't hear any of this. They didn't. I know that. Well, they heard it with their ears, but they didn't hear it with their hearts and with their minds. It didn't register with them. How do I know that? Because Luke 18 34 adds this comment. Listen, the disciples did not understand any of this, its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Isn't that an amazing statement? I mean, look at this. You, you read verse 32, verse 33, verse 34. It seems straightforward enough. It seems pretty clear. It seems pretty plain. And yet, Luke 18, 34 says, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Can you imagine that? Jesus pulls them aside, and he tells them all of this. And it's as if they just you know, reassemble back with the crowd and just forget everything he just said. They didn't have a clue. It's like, oh, we we don't know what he's talking about. Let's keep going to Jerusalem. This was the furthest thing from their minds. In fact, it is amazing to realize that whenever Jesus made an announcement or prediction about his death, it was followed by a display of pride by the disciples. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to Matthew 17 again where we were earlier. Matthew 17. We looked at verses 22 and 23 where Jesus predicted his death. Then just a few verses later, we've got a chapter break here. Remember, the chapter breaks are not inspired. So this is just a continual flow of story. The story continues to flow right on into chapter 18. And notice what Matthew says in chapter 18, verse 1. At that time so we're talking about the same time frame where jesus makes his announcement and all of this at that time the disciples came to jesus saying who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven i don't want to be too hard on the disciples because we aren't really any different but it is amazing even after jesus told about his death that they would be wondering about who is the greatest And the same kind of response follows our text in Mark chapter 10. Go back to Mark, our text in Mark 10. I'll show you what I mean. Jesus makes this announcement in verses 32 through 34 about his death. And notice what Mark tells us in verse 35, the very next verse. Then, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And you know this story. The next thing we are told after Jesus made the announcement in verses 32 through, through 34 is that James and John came to Jesus to see if they could have the right and left-hand places of honor in the kingdom. And all the other disciples got mad at him because they beat them to the punch. Now you talk about self-centeredness and self-focus. This is really it. The disciples were so focused on their interests and their preferences, their lives, that they really didn't even hear what Jesus said to them. It's almost like they didn't care. Instead of appreciating what Jesus would have to suffer for their sake, they were caught up in their own agenda, their own comforts. Now, before we cluck our tongues at the disciples' We need to think about how we are like this. How much, how much do we really appreciate what the Lord suffered on our behalf? How much thought do we really give it? How much of an impact does it make? We can attend church on a Sunday morning and hear about the sufferings of Jesus And we can turn around and get in an argument with a spouse, a friend, or a neighbor Sunday afternoon. We can attend church and hear about the sufferings of Jesus. And we can turn around and get furious with someone on the way home who makes us drive slower than we want to drive. We can attend church on a Sunday morning and hear about the sufferings of Jesus. And we can turn around and watch some raunchy TV show Sunday afternoon or Sunday night. You know why? Because we think more about our own agenda, our own preferences, our own comforts than we do about the Lord and his sufferings on our behalf. We're not any different than the disciples. We're not. Thoughts of the Lord's death, thoughts of his suffering don't consume us like thoughts about ourselves consume us. I mean, I see this in relation to communion. So many have the attitude, well, if it's convenient and it works, then yeah, yeah, I'll celebrate communion. But if I have to put out any effort, if it's not convenient, what's the big deal? That I don't remember the Lord's death in that way. We're not any different than the disciples. We think more about our own agenda, our own preferences, our own comforts, than we do about the Lord and his sufferings for us. It's a sad reality. So let's not be so quick to put down the disciples for the way they heard about the sufferings of Jesus and immediately put it out of their minds to think about what was more important to them. We do the same thing. We we do the same thing. We, We hear about the sufferings of Jesus and then, boom, we just dismiss it and think about what's more important to us. But hopefully this text will be a rebuke to us that we will hear. Hopefully, it will cause us to pray about it at the very least. Hopefully, it will increase our appreciation of the fact that our Lord suffered immensely on our behalf. He suffered betrayal from a close friend. He suffered abandonment from many friends. He suffered humiliation, mocking, hatred, and pain from the hands of men, wrath, and abandonment from God. He truly was a suffering Messiah. And his sufferings were not for himself. They were for us. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As we bow our heads in closing this morning having been reminded of what the disciples did let's determine by God's grace that we won't do the same thing. That we won't close our Bibles and say oh good sermon and just go on with whatever else go on with other thoughts whatever is more important to us. Instead as the, as the disciples should have done by God's grace may we really let this truth sink in. May we really contemplate it and realize that Jesus endured all of these things that he spoke of here, betrayal, condemnation, deliverance to the Romans, mocking, scourging, spitting, death, crucifixion, that he endured all of those things for our sake. It wasn't for his sake, obviously. He didn't, from his own standpoint, need to go through any of that. But he needed to go through it if we were going to have any chance of redemption. And so he suffered in our place as our substitute. And beloved, if you've been a Christian for a while, you need to guard your heart that your familiarity with this truth doesn't just become commonplace and that we don't just start becoming callous to it because we've heard it so many times, so many times. I remind you that the disciples heard Jesus say this many times also, but it didn't register with them, certainly not as it should have. We can follow the same pattern. So by God's grace, let's determine that we won't. And let's ask the Father to keep our hearts always sensitive to the immensity of this truth of what Jesus endured on our behalf. Now, if you're here today and you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, no relationship with God the Father, you've been exposed to, you've seen what it took to accomplish redemption. Jesus had to die because you are a sinner. Jesus had to die because I am a sinner. And he paid the price, the penalty for our sin. And then it is our responsibility, and I say responsibility because we are often in Scripture exhorted, commanded to repent. So it's our responsibility to repent and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, receiving his gift that was purchased on the cross. So if that's you today, let go of whatever is holding you back. Receive Jesus Christ by faith and his precious payment that was so torturous to purchase. Father, as we close our morning together, we are thankful for this very brief three-verse text, but very, very potent text. Because not only do we see what Jesus tried to emphasize to his disciples, we see in their response, our common response, if we let ourselves go this way. It it can just, it can be whole hum to us. We hear it, and we just don't really get it, because we just turn and start thinking about whatever is more important to us. Deliver us from that kind of response. May we always be in awe when we think about, consider, and contemplate what Jesus suffered to purchase our redemption. May it soften our hearts toward Him. And we pray that, especially for anyone here today who doesn't know Christ personally as Lord and Savior, who cannot call you Father, may your spirit soften their hearts that they would respond to the gospel, the good news of what Jesus accomplished. And may they, by faith, receive Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.